Dateline, Rome, Italy, 62 A.D. A cargo ship from Alexandria arrives with a special passenger, a man named Paul, leader of Christianity, prisoner of Rome. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem for insurrection and held for two years in a Roman stockade at Caesarea. As a citizen of the empire, it was his legal right to appeal his case. He opted to stand trial before Emperor Nero. We have no record of his encounter with the Caesar, but I'm sure by the time Paul was done, it was Nero who felt like he was on trial. Count on Paul to present the ruling Roman with a compelling case, a compelling witness for our Lord Jesus. Imagine the showdown in Nero's palace, the apostle to the Gentiles before the king of the Gentiles. At Paul's conversion, Jesus had predicted that Paul would bear his name before Gentiles and kings. Now the moment has come. The apostle confronts the prince of the Gentiles with the king of all kings. Secular historians note a marked change in Nero around the time of his meeting with Paul. Oh, 62-63 AD. Nero went nuts. He went insane. It's possible that Nero's rejection of the gospel helped cause his demise. Demon possession probably best explains his behavior. Nero ended up one of the cruelest rulers of all time. He even murdered his own wife and mother out of jealousy. Nero was an egomaniac. He showed off by building stadiums and constructing pagan temples. But Rome was out of room, and Nero needed more space. So on July the 19th, 64 AD, a fire started in the woodsheds near the Circus Maximus. Later it was reported that Nero's servants were seen running from the sheds where the blaze had started. The fire engulfed the city. It raged for 10 days and torched two-thirds of downtown Rome. Everyone suspected that Caesar Nero was the arsonist. He had burned his own city so that he could rebuild it In honor to himself, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. And when the fingers started pointing at the Caesar, he needed a scapegoat. So Nero blamed Rome's destruction on the Christians. Nero launched a massive crusade to persecute the followers of Jesus. He burned believers at the stake just to light his parties. Nero clothed Christians in animal skins and threw them to the wild dogs just to watch them get mauled. Christians under Nero were crucified, executed by gladiators, torn apart by ferocious lions. Nero's persecution of believers was relentless and merciless. Finally, in 65 AD, he arrested the two champions of Christianity, both Peter and Paul. For Paul, it was his second arrest. That same year, Peter was crucified upside down. A few months later, Paul was beheaded. At the moment, Paul's head is on the chopping block. He's in Rome's maritime prison. I've been there myself. It was a dungeon at the time. It was a cold, dark, damp cave. In Paul's day, it was rat-infested and sewer-infected. The prison that held Paul was just off the famous forum. 
Paul could hear the mindless chants of pagan worship. He could smell the burning of sacrifices to idols. Paul wasn't far from where the Colosseum would later be constructed. In years to come, the Colosseum would become a graveyard for Christians. The site might have been chosen because it was already a killing field. Picture Paul now. He's chained to a dungeon wall. He hears the screams of fellow believers being tortured for their faith. He knows at any moment he could be next. Welcome to Rome. And in such dire straits, what is his priority? He writes a letter. As he awaits a date with the executioner, he picks up his pen and he writes his final words to a friend. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice that. Instead of fearing death, Paul is rejoicing over the promise of eternal life he has in Christ. Hanging over his head isn't a gloomy cloud, but a glorious sunrise. Jesus has guaranteed him eternal life. And he writes to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Warren Wiersbe points out that Paul added mercy to his greeting to pastors. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Paul knew that pastors need mercy. And I couldn't agree more. Boy, a pastor always traffics in issues way over his head. Who am I to speak for God, to represent the Almighty? It's a sobering responsibility. James 3 verse 1 warns warns pastors, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Pastors need to take heed, but I'm also glad that God tempers His judgment with mercy. Hey, why don't you be like God and have a little mercy towards your pastor? And then Paul says in verse 3, I thank God. He does what? Realize jail for Paul isn't three meals a day and cable TV and access to the prison library and weight room. He's in a dungeon. The light is dim. The air is damp and cold. Paul poops in a can, no less. If he eats at all, it's because a brother on the outside has shared with him some table scraps. The Apostle Paul is old now. He's tired. He's about to die. And yet, he thanks God. There's no grumbling. There's no murmuring. There's no whining. No focusing on himself. No concern about his own plight. No worries about his future. He is full of praise and gratitude to God. Remember the pilgrims who got off the Mayflower? Life in the New World was tough. The first year, these people made seven times more graves than they did huts. And yet they decided to set aside a day for Thanksgiving. It really is all about perspective, isn't it? Paul says he thanks God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did. Paul is concluding his ministry now with no regrets. His conscience is clear. He's taken no shortcuts. He served God with integrity. Paul served God and he prayed for Timothy 
as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers, night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. Timothy is on the outside shedding a tear in prayer for Paul, while Paul is on the inside of the prison praying for his friend Timothy. And when he thinks of Timothy, he can't help but remember his family. Verse 5, For when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Notice, only genuine faith is detected by kids in their parents. It's the genuine variety that they pick up on. Kids have an innate radar. They have a baloney meter. It filters out all that's phony. Parents, your child will be impressed by your relationship with God only if it's genuine faith. Acts 16 verse 1 tells us that Timothy's dad was not a believer. But both his mom and his grandma were sincere Christians with a vibrant faith. And these two ladies had a profound impact on Timothy. This should be a great encouragement to our single moms or to ladies who are married to unbelievers. Single parents can raise children with prevailing faith and godly character. I hope all of our parents realize that their top priority should be their child's spiritual formation and development. So what if you teach your kid to read and write? So what if you sharpen their athletic skills and send them to college and turn them into good citizens if at the end of the day they die and go to hell? Christian psychologist James Dobson comments, I urge you as parents of young children to provide for them an unshakable faith in Jesus Christ. This is your most important function as mothers and fathers. How can anything else compare in significance to the goal of keeping the family circle unbroken in the life to come? Indeed, we need to pass down our faith to our kids. And realize, you don't pass along faith like you pass down curly hair or big feet or a large nose. Faith isn't genetics or germs. Breathing on your child won't make them a Christian. Even proximity to other Christians is no assurance they'll become Christians themselves. Passing down spiritual values is like a quarterback passing to a split end. It's a voluntary act on both ends. The quarterback picks the timing. He throws the ball to the right spot. He tosses it with just the right touch. A pass completion requires timing and targeting and touch. And even a perfect pass has to be squeezed by the receiver and pulled to his chest. And likewise, faith is a personal decision. We use timing and targeting and touch to convey God's truth, but then the kid has to pull it in. Well, Paul continues. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Timid Timothy was how he was known by his friends. According to 2 Timothy 4 verse 5, Timothy's gifts was evangelism. He had a knack for communicating his faith to unbelievers. But because of his fears and his inhibitions, he had allowed his spiritual gift to lie dormant. 
He needed to blow off the dust and put it back to use. Have you ever gotten out of a swimming pool on a cool day? Once you dry off, once you warm up in the summer sun, it's awfully hard to make yourself go back into that cold water again. And you see, this was Timothy's problem. He'd gotten out of the struggle. He had started off to serve the Lord. And all he meant to do was take a break. He just wanted to take a little while off. But now that he'd dried off, he was having a hard time getting back into the water. Timothy, according to Paul, needs to grit his teeth and stir up his desire and dive back into the pool. Perhaps you've taken a break from being involved in your church, being involved in any kind of ministry. Now you're having a hard time easing back into the water. You need to stir up your gifts and dive back in. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Hey, if the Spirit of Jesus courses through your spiritual veins, He'll drive out fear with the supply of power and love and a sound mind. You know, some folks fear failure. That's what besets them, a fear of failure. But don't be overcome. The Holy Spirit gives His people power to succeed. The Greek term for power is dynamic or dunamis. The Holy Spirit is a source of boldness and spiritual dynamic. Other folks fear people. What what will other people say? Yet the Spirit of God counters that fear with love. Perfect love casts out fear. What Jesus did for mankind overshadows what man can do to us. The fear of people, the antidote, is the love of Jesus. And then still other folks fear the fear of the unknown. That's what besets them. And this is why a sound mind keeps us fixed on what's sure and certain. It fixates us on God's Word and His promises. You know, in Luke chapter 9, verse 55, Jesus turned to James and John and He rebuked them. He said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. Let's not make that same mistake. Our world today is controlled by fear. Fear of failure. Fear of people. Fear of the unknown. But God has given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Timothy had gotten discouraged by looking at Paul's plight. His mentor was in chains, no less. But Paul tells him, do not be ashamed. He's the prisoner of Jesus, not Rome. Evil men can chain Paul, but not the gospel. It is the power of God. Timothy is involved in a movement that will overtake the world and determine the destiny of all men for all time. Timothy should forget about Paul's chains and recall God's salvation. Verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Yes, presently, Paul was in prison. But the purposes and the grace of God had been at work before time began. 
Paul's point is don't trip up over a momentary trouble and lose sight of God's eternal purposes. And keep your eyes on Jesus, would you? Verse 10. For God has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul is a jailed prisoner, but his Savior is risen and victorious. He is the revelation of God, and he is teaching the character of God to those who keep their eyes on him. And Paul's goal is to serve Jesus, come what may, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Paul's hope, his faith, his calling was so hot, it couldn't be doused by a temporary trial. Reminds me of those two boys down on the bayou. They'd treat a bobcat. One fella climbed up into the tree to shake the limb. The other had a bag to catch the bobcat. But when the cat hit the ground, fur and skin and blood started flying everywhere. The boy up in the tree shouted, Can't you grab a little old bobcat? His partner replied, I can grab him all right. My only problem is letting him loose. And this is the issue with the gospel. Once you grasp the gospel and its power, there's no letting go. There's no turning loose. Paul is the classic example. He would rather lose his head to a sword than turn loose of the gospel. Several years ago, an Alabama school bus driver named Charles Poland was shot to death trying to protect the kids on the bus from a crazed man who was seeking a hostage. Poland was hailed as a hero in Dale County. When his wife was interviewed, she spoke of the nights on the porch when she and Charles would sip coffee while they watched the sunset. She quoted the reporter their favorite Bible verse. It's the next verse, 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Lydia Poland commented of this verse. She said, that is what I hold on to right now. God knows. He is the only one who can bring closure to my heart right now. Paul, too, suffered inexplicable trials. Life isn't always fair. Sometimes we all endure things that we're called on to endure. They don't make sense. Yet Paul held on to the hope that he had in Christ. He was persuaded. Come what may, Jesus had assured his ultimate triumph. Lydia, Poland had the same confidence. And notice Paul doesn't say, I know what I have believed. It's whom I have believed. Christianity is not just faith in a set of doctrines or principles. It's faith in a person. Paul's confidence was in the risen Christ. He was persuaded that no matter what happened to him today or on any other day, on that day when his life was over, Jesus would stand by his side and obtain for him the mercies in favor of Almighty God. Do you have that confidence? You can in Christ. Well, Paul charges Timothy in verse 13. He says, hold fast the pattern 
of sound words which you have heard from me, in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Here's a really good gift, friends. A pattern of sound words that promote faith and love. If you've been blessed to sit under a steady stream of solid Bible teaching, that is, a pattern of sound words, you have been the recipient of a truly marvelous gift. Richard Niebuhr once once said, The great Christian revolutions come not by discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when somebody takes radically something that was always there. We don't need new truths. But we need faithful reminders of all that's biblical. We need a pattern of sound words flowing into our lives. Verse 15, This you know, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. These were former fair-weather friends who had abandoned Paul when it got tough to be his friend. When Paul was jailed, they bailed on their support. Timothy knew them, and here Paul points them out. Whereas we're 16, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. Onesiphorus, the name means prophet-bearing. And this man was certainly a prophet. He was a blessing to Paul. Onesiphorus' mission to Rome reminds me of Alvin Strait's journey to Wisconsin. Alvin lived in Iowa. He was 73 years old. At the time, his eyes were so poor that he couldn't get a driver's license. And he didn't trust buses and cars and planes. So when his brother had a stroke... Old Alvin wanted to be by his brother's side, so he cranked up his 1966 John Deere lawnmower and he drove 200 miles from Iowa to Blue River, Wisconsin to console his brother. This was the dedication of Onesiphorus. Paul's spiritual brother had traveled from Ephesus to Rome, a more difficult journey than Alvin's. He found Paul in prison and he stayed by his side to lend him his help. Paul says of Onesiphorus, The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Oh, some people give off airs. Other people pollute the air. They're real stinkers. But Onesiphorus was a breath of fresh air. Let's seek to refresh one another. And then chapter 2. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Here is the golden rule of growing a church. I could go out and I could win people to Jesus, then spend time with each one of them helping them grow. And in my lifetime, I could perhaps win a few hundred folks to Jesus. Or I could win a few people and help them grow. Then teach those few 
to win others and help them grow, who then could win others and help them grow. Suddenly, the exponential effect kicks in. The impact swells to thousands, not just hundreds. It's the difference between 2 plus 2 plus 2 plus 2 equals 8, and 2 times 2 times 2 times 2 equals 16. D.L. Moody put it this way, I would rather set 10 men to work than do the work of 10 men. 10 men can accomplish far more than just one person. The word disciple means learner. And every Christian should be learning and growing in Christ. Yet the disciple doesn't simply remain a learner. The learner should eventually become a teacher. I'm teaching you the Bible from week to week in hopes that you'll go out and you'll begin to teach others. And then they'll teach others, etc., etc., etc. And when people grow in Christ, they encounter hardships. Satan attacks them. This means that disciples need to cultivate endurance. And in the next verses, Paul uses three analogies to help add fortitude to our faith. Paul points to three occupations, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And he points out how a soldier leads a streamlined life, an athlete, a structured life, and a farmer lives a sustained life. Notice first the soldier. He says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Hey, warfare is full time. It's a 24-7 preoccupation. When you're fighting for your survival and for the freedom of your loved ones, you don't have time to mow the lawn. Or tend your flower beds. Your total attention is directed toward the battle. And spiritually, friends, we're involved in a battle. Thus, we can't allow ourselves to get distracted with secular concerns. Sure, we got to go to work. Sure, we need to be good stewards of our stuff. But don't take your eyes off the battle. All Christians need to develop a wartime mentality. Life is short. The stakes are high. We need to streamline our lives and make sure that we're putting first things first. Robert Moffat said, We'll have all eternity to celebrate our victories, but only one short hour before sunset in which to win them. Be a good soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. One name, Lance Armstrong. Was there ever a bigger fall from grace? Stripped of seven Tour de France championships for cheating, for blood doping, Lance Armstrong will forever bear a stigma of shame. So what if you achieve a moment of glory only to be disqualified afterwards. And the same is true spiritually. In Christian ministry, the end never justifies the means. When a Christian takes shortcuts or finds loopholes or manipulates to achieve, it becomes a tainted victory. Obviously, for an athlete's efforts to be meaningful, he has to play by the rules. And likewise for a Christian. 
Our desire to accomplish great things for God should never override our commitment to do it God's way. God's work should always be done God's way. The athlete plays by the rules. And then finally, verse 6, the hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. In other words, a farmer has to eat from the harvest to sustain his strength as he works. And while we minister for the Lord, we also need to be nourished by the Lord. If we're always putting out spiritually and never taking in, we'll eventually dry up. The farmer who's overworked and underfed runs out of steam, and likewise the Christian. God's servant needs to eat from what he feeds others. He needs to eat his own feed. Paul wraps up these analogies. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Now remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. In other words, you can chain the messenger, but you can't change the message. It's been said of the Bible, it outlives, outlifts, outloves, outreaches, outranks, outruns all other books. You can't hold down the truth of God's Word. Verse 10, Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul could endure persecutions knowing that it was through his sufferings others would hear the gospel and come to know Christ. Then he says, this is a faithful saying. And this faithful saying that Paul is about to utter is one of several such faithful sayings in his pastoral letters. There are actually three, 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, 4 verse 9, and Titus 3 verse 8, three other of these faithful sayings. Now understand, these faithful sayings that he's about to utter were liturgies used in the worship of the early church. The church would recite these declarations of faith as reminders of vital truths. It's a taste. We're getting a taste now of the earliest Christian worship. They would speak in unison. For if we died with Him, we also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. If we are faithless... He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Notice the rhythmic, the easy-to-memorize way that early Christians would recite crucial elements of their faith and the paradoxical structure added to it. If we die, we'll live. If we endure, we'll reign. If we deny him, he'll deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. Each of these statements taught an essential truth on which these early Christians lived their lives. First, I want you to notice the positive reminders here. If we die, we'll live. In other words, trust in the crucified Christ to put an end to your sin, and He in turn will give you new life spiritually. Then He says, if we endure, we'll reign. Endure hardship, knowing that your faith will earn for you authority in God's kingdom one day. And then there's two negative Reminders, if we deny him, he'll deny us. 
If a man denies Christ, the Lord has no other choice. He'll say of you, I never knew you. Depart from me. And then the last line in the liturgy is often misinterpreted. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Folks often use this to gloss over their faithlessness. Oh, oh, see right here? Even if I stop having faith in Jesus, he'll remain faithful to me. No, that's not what Paul says. If you're faithless, he does remain faithful. But it's not, he's not being faithful to a faithless person. He remains faithful to his word. God tells us salvation is by grace through faith. Thus, if you have no faith, then he makes no exceptions. He's got to remain true to himself and to what he said. And so thus, if you are faithless, he remains faithful. He'll deny you. The last line of the liturgy is a warning, not a comfort. Then verse 14. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Pastors who don't teach the Bible but instead major on worldly wisdom are in essence dealing in words to no profit. And it brings about the ruin of their hearers. In contrast, Paul commands Timothy, be diligent to present yourself approved to God A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That phrase, rightly dividing, it means to cut straight. The Greek word was used to describe a farmer in the fields plowing a straight furrow. Or a carpenter cutting a board at an exact angle. We all, and particularly a pastor, needs to be diligent in our interpreting of God's word. Exactness is required here. A haphazard or sloppy approach is an insult. It's dangerous. You know, carpenters have a slogan. If you're a carpenter, you know what I'm about to say. And this should be how we interpret the Bible. Measure twice, cut once. Before a carpenter makes a cut, he slows down. He double checks. He rethinks. He stabilizes his hand. The cut is made only after painstaking precision. The slightest slip or miscalculation can produce a disaster. And the same is true if we misinterpret the Scriptures. Measure twice, cut once. And then verse 16. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Why is it foolish, empty speculation spreads like wildfire while sound doctrine flows through the church like molasses? Paul says, and their message will spread like cancer. False doctrine, superstition, misguided conjecture metastasizes in the body of Christ like a cancer does in a human body. This is why it has to be cut out as soon as possible. You can't put it off. And then Paul points to two examples of this. He says, Hamanaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth. Recall back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, Hamanaeus was the person whose faith had been shipwrecked. 
Paul had to deliver him to Satan to learn not to blaspheme. And here was his error, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Hymenaeus may have denied a literal resurrection of our physical bodies, thus concluding that people were free to indulge their fleshly appetites in immoral ways. Paul counters him in verse 19. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And then verse 20. But in a great house here, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. If you were to attend a state dinner at the White House, you'd probably dine on expensive china. The oldest presidential china, by the way, was purchased by James Monroe in 1817. The plates are decorated with a presidential eagle. They're priceless. But if you toured the kitchen and you dug in there far enough, you'd probably also find some regular dishes, maybe even some paper plates and some plastic cups, some dishes that get soiled and get tossed out regularly. Hey, you'll find vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And you'll find the same in the house of God. There is the pure teaching of God's Word served up on plates, beautifully embossed with the seal of God's Spirit. Vessels of honor rightly dividing the Word of truth. But you'll also encounter some shoddy interpretation, some impure doctrine from unreliable vessels. Their speculation is dishonorable. This is why you need to beware. You need to learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. Then Paul says in verse 21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. You know, the Greek name Timothy, it meant God-honoring. And Paul wants his protege to live up to his name and how he cares for and handles the word of God. And we too, need to rightly divide God's Word. This is why I hope you'll come on Wednesday nights. Deepen your knowledge of the Bible. Be a vessel of honor. And then verse 22. Flee also youthful lusts. It was Ronald Reagan who once said, Middle age is when you have two temptations and you choose the one that will get you home by 9 p.m. In contrast, Timothy was a young man and therefore vulnerable to all the temptations of youth, sex and power and greed and vanity and popularity and pride. Timothy needs to flee anything that might draw him from Christ or ruin his effectiveness for Christ. You you recall how Joseph reacted to Mrs. Potiphar's sexual advances? He didn't try to be polite. He didn't let her down gently. He raced from her embrace. And that's how young men should handle temptation, sprout wings and flee. But there's another old saying. Most people who flee temptation usually leave a forwarding address. And this is why Timothy shouldn't just flee temptation, but in its place, 
He needs to pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Verse 23, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. I mean, what difference does it make how many angels can fit on the head of a pen? Some issues make good argument, but nothing else. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. A servant of the Lord corrects others while watching his own step. Nobody has perfect doctrine. We all have blind spots, areas where we can learn, and that's why we need humility. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Notice when a person does come to his senses, when he escapes the snare of Satan, it's the result of God granting him repentance. Only God's Spirit can truly change a person's heart. Thus, we pray for those who are ensnared. And I pray for you. 